Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guest, Dr. Jeff Gardere, has been a featured mental health expert on just about every news program you can imagine. He's here with us today to talk about our mental health, about looking after people who are close to us. Uh, and also, he's going to help us process some of these tragedies we've seen in the news, Buffalo in particular. Uh, we're talking about a community that's going to be dealing with its own mental health crises. And I'm also interested in what makes the disease of racism happen? What is that pathology? Uh, tune into my conversation with Dr. Jeff. Here we are. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jeff. Thank you so much, Tanya, for having me. Really looking forward uh, to uh, being interviewed by you. Thank you for having me another mass shooting, a hate-fueled shooting, an 18-year-old shooter, um, and people who are dead because of his twisted beliefs um, mm -hmm. and his access to that weapon. Let, let's first talk about what, what happens in a community, you know, from a clinical perspective when it's violated by that type of violence. Um, what's happening with those community members? And, you know, certainly the people who witnessed it or were there are in a trauma, but what sort of trauma might we expect that would happen, you know, for those who even weren't present at the time? Uh, for, first of all, that is a community in mourning. I happen to know someone who actually has family and thank God everyone is okay, you know, from that person's particular circle. But, you know, many people lost their lives and injuries and so on, which is traumatic that will stay with, with that particular community for a long time because they were violated, absolutely violated and decimated. Uh, and it was a genocide based on racism, based on hate, so those particular individuals who actually witnessed or family members or who were part of that particular massacre for years will have that post-traumatic stress disorder, um, where they're having the anxiety, the depression, the flashbacks, the intrusive thoughts, hyper arousal at all times, uh, possible nervous breakdowns, not understanding or being able to put together what this is all about, or man's inhumanity to man. And so it's going to take years upon years uh, for those individuals to really be, you know, in a place uh, where they have, you know, true hope uh, as, as well as a strong psychological functioning. Um, I do believe that that community, of course, will rebuild itself psychologically. People will be much more involved in the struggle, uh, the fight for freedom and respect for all. I would hope that it's not just that the, the black community that is um, a major part of that area, but everyone as part of that community, all races, uh, all religions and cultures will come together to rebuild psychologically and fight a new fight and be aware that this radicalization of certain individuals is something that we're going to see happen in many parts of the country. 
uh, that there are people who will be, uh, because of the politics, the, the, the poisonous politics that we have right now uh, that is happening, uh, that those individuals will be at risk for digesting that kind of hate, that divisiveness, and if there is some real mental instability, and by the way, let's be aware, and I have to say this, people with psychological issues, with psychological illness, are not violent individuals. They, in fact, are victims of violence. But there are other people who, you know, it is the perfect storm of that kind of hate being taught and who may have a certain type of personality that may be at risk and will buy into that kind of hate that kind of racism, that kind of supremacy, that kind of privilege. And so we will have to deal with that and we have to be awake for that because we will be seeing more of that, Tanya. So what you're saying is that there's a certain subset of people who are particularly susceptible to the hate-fueled messages, to this replacement theory nonsense to the, uh, you know, we've got to protect white people and white rights at all costs. And these are real messages. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of us are just hearing more sanitized versions on uh, more normalized platforms, but on some of the darker platforms uh, on the web, they're just coming straight out and saying that. Dr. Jeff, what is the pathology of racism? So, you know, if I'm thinking about it, we've always had it. Like, there's always been an element in any country. You know, this is not a uniquely American disease. But there is, it almost, there's something pathological, it seems, about this need to want to prop oneself up because of the package in which they are born and to denigrate others because of the package in which others are born. I mean, is there some particular pathology around this, some kind of group think or like, what is, is there a way to describe this sickness? Well, yes. And, and I believe it is a sickness and racism is a pathology, especially when it's not addressed. Uh, racism is different from implicit bias because, as I said, we all have implicit bias, but and we have to work on that. But racism is about hate. Racism is about delusional thinking. Racism is about dishonesty and lies. And all of that is around the pathology of privilege. Um, elevating oneself about above others, to feel that they are superior to others, to set up a caste and a class system where, you know, a certain group actually benefits from the privilege. Um, and the privilege is important because that means other people don't have it. If we all had it and we're all equal, then privilege would mean nothing. But in some uh, people's heads, privilege is about the value and the, and, and the wealth, where the real wealth is about equality for all. Um, we have to be aware that I, there are certain aspects, certain t- uh, parts of our population that have been fed this kind of poison from the time they were born to the time 
we are today. Uh, let's take a look at the January 6th insurrection. We can't look at that and say, well, those were people who perhaps, you know, had psychological, you know, psychosis, you know, or deep, deep personality issues. Some of those people were lied to, sold a bill of goods, and convinced that the only way that they can do well is by making sure that there is, you know, that they remain in place, you know, that there's a certain privilege and power that they have. And therefore, the January 6th insurrection was unprecedented. Uh, it was something that was destructive to all of our citizens, not just black citizens, not just Jewish citizens, but to all of our citizens. And that's why it is so important. It will take all of our nation to fight this kind of racism, to fight the anti-Semitism, to fight the sexism, Islamophobia, anti-LGBTQ+, certain factions, especially those who are acted uh, upon, who are discriminated against, they cannot do it alone. This is where we must all come together as Americans to fight for freedom, to fight for respect, uh, and to make sure that we help everyone uh, achieve the American dream. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's just ridiculous. It's just futile to think that we can survive as a nation. When you talk about something like the January 6th insurrection, so that's a situation that I can really disaggregate from these other conditions. Like it's, separate from the racism that plagues us, separate from the, all of the phobias, all of it. This was at bottom, you could at bottom about people believing a lie. What does it mean? And again, I'm talking to you as a clinician. What does that susceptibility to believing something that is plainly false mean? Because for me, uh, and you know, I, I say this as a lawyer, like my bread and butter is you have to have a basis for proving the truth because if you tell a bold-faced lie, you're going to look stupid. You're going to lose your, your case. Your client will be annoyed and the judge, may say, uh, the judge might sanction you, you know, I mean, in, the, in certain sure. scenarios. In this other world outside of court, Lies have been normalized. There's a cottage industry of people who are normalizing them and profiting from them. And as we saw on January 6th, are prepared to commit violence in support of that lie. That means the rest of us are not safe. So doctor, that's a pathology. That's a really scary situation. And I don't care about your politics. Uh, if the rest of us can be held hostage by folks with pitch, pitchforks and nooses who will believe whatever they feel like, we can't be safe. So how do you deal with that? That is, uh, that is something that we have to work on every day, but it means completely changing the way that we put out information, the information um, superhighway, the way that we're looking at social media. We know that as part of that, 
January 6th insurrection, you know, many things, of course, um, that we're starting to find out from the committee that is looking into that, that it was planned that there were elected officials involved and Perhaps that information will come out, you know, as the days move on. We'll hear, you know, about people being subpoenaed and what it is. Um, and I believe the committee already knew, uh, already knows what happened with January 6th. Um, but it really comes down to the information, stopping the disinformation. We see the disinformation in networks. We see the disinformation on social media. Uh, I like to say that the medium is not just the message, the medium is the massage. And people who are disillusioned, people who feel that they have been uh, left over and who have not been given their due and who feel that other groups have been given more than they have been or who feel that they are more American than others, those individuals are susceptible to not just the big lie, but to every lie. Lies have been weaponized and people have forgotten that honesty is the best policy, that honesty is the real deal, that if you really want to get to someone's heart and their mind, it's through honesty and not through lies because those lies will, you know, they're as thin as the paper um, that we write on. But if we want to really connect with individuals, then we must speak truth to power. You know, one thing that is certainly front of mind for a lot of people, because she was important to so many people and beloved by so many, is Naomi Judd's uh, very tragic passing. And it reminds us, Dr. Jeff, that the problem and disease of mental illness is real. Uh, it's closer to many of us than we may know. What are some of the signs that we should look for uh, so that we can hopefully help someone who may be struggling? Well, we're not really sure of what the mental illness with uh, Naomi Judd was. I think most of us may think it was probably around issues of depression, right? And that, and that's a lot of what we're hearing. Um, and I think we've heard that from the family to some extent. Uh, I have to tell you that I actually met uh, Naomi Judd many years ago and uh, just a really fabulous, fabulous uh, uh, individual, just a wonderful, kind person. I believe we're seeing with depression, um, especially for um, adults, it, it, it's a little bit different for kids, and we could talk about that in a minute. Uh, but for adults, what we see is profound sadness, um, isolation, a loss uh, of anything uh, that they found a lot of pleasure in. Uh, so typically, they may stop working or getting involved in pastimes that uh, once brought them uh, a lot of joy, not really reaching out to other people, spending a lot of time in bed, not having much energy, a lot of crying, uh, hopelessness, uh, feeling that no matter how rosy a picture everyone else sees, for them, they see something that is completely 
hopeless. Their whole perception and view of things uh, completely change and become skewed uh, in a negative way. And of course, they may talk about not having any future, not wanting to be around, and actually talking about hurting themselves. That's what we see mostly in adults. In children, we may see some of the same things, but we also see that kids act out. Kids may be much more angry uh, because they can't identify what it is that they're feeling. Even if they, they're, they're experiencing the sadness, they may not know what it is, but they know it's wrong. Uh, we may see acting out with regard to uh, perhaps using substances and so on. But otherwise, some of the exact same signs of hopelessness, especially uh, perhaps being bullied not being in touch with their friends, being seen as being very different and isolated. So we tend to see those things uh, in children. But without a doubt, Tanya, people need to understand, you know, this old mindset with people who are depressed or and or may have anxiety of, you know, just get over it. Don't you see that there's a better way? You know, oh, come on. You know, you can get through this. You know, everything is really much, much better. You're not thinking. When you're depressed, you really aren't thinking in that positive way. So this is something that is extremely, extremely serious. You have described a difference between uh, being in a state of poor mental health and having a diagnosable mental health condition. Help us understand what that difference is. Well, most of us at some point in our lives will have some issues around not having full mental health. And we see it as a continuum. We may have excellent mental health or excellent health. You can't have one without the other, by the way. As things may get very difficult for us at some point in life, uh, perhaps our mental health may not be as strong. Uh, and therefore, we may have times of dysphoria or sadness or a temporary depression, one that is not so serious that eventually someone can get through it, sometimes on their own. But most depression, if not all of it, should be treated. People should get help for that. But we all have mental health uh, challenges. Right. Everybody has moments. I mean, you describe yes. like sometimes you're really sad and bummed out and you just want to sit in bed and look at TV. I've had those days. Most people I know have had those days either triggered by some personal loss, either triggered by the fact that the world has been turned upside down over the past couple of years and people's Something lives. Something to talk about. Yeah, yeah, and people's lives have been turned upside down. So we all have had those moments I think the challenge is, uh, you know, really, Dr. Jeff, what I'm trying to figure out is if someone comes to me, you know, or you or someone out there who's listening and they're like, I'm just having a tough time, like I feel badly. At what point do you say, you know what, like, let's think positive because I know it gets a bad rap, but sometimes that's helped me when somebody reminds me to refocus on the good. But for some people, the cloud is too dark. So yes, absolutely. What do you? What can you tell us about yes. how to respond to someone's sadness? 
Well, anyone who is going through some issue with life, and we know the pandemic, we have uh, excessive anxiety and depression, but you know, a lot of people have been challenged. It's important that we validate, Tanya, how people feel. Yes, I understand you are feeling really bad. I understand and I empathize with you that this is something that is extremely difficult. And then, of course, since we are our brothers and sisters keepers, I think it's really important that we help them figure out a way out of that situation, that we help them as far as empowerment strategies. Ah, I've been through that too. Here are some of the things that I did. And that's why support groups are so important. Um, I don't think we should ever turn a blind eye on anyone who is super resilient or we think is super resilient and think, ah, they'll just go ahead and get through that by themselves. Chances are they will, but sometimes you never know. Now, to your other part of that question, when is it diagnosable? That's when we see that their occupational, academic functioning has been impaired, that they can't take care of their responsibilities, that that cloud that you talked about is so dark that they just can't see their way through. And therefore, we get them to a clinician and make sure that they are diagnosed and see what therapies are available and or medication if that is helpful. Do you think that we have done enough to reduce the stigma associated with mental health treatment? I, I think that that stigma still exists in many communities, you know, and I think that maybe there's some correlation between access to treatment and resources to get treatment and stigma around treatment, perhaps. I'm just pontificating, yes. but are, are, are yeah, we no, doing no. enough? Um, I think your generation is. Your generation is. The younger generation actually are leaders with regard to looking at mental health as something that needs to be uh, worked on. You just don't take it for granted. Just like with health in general, you know, we work out, we do, you know, we eat right, hopefully do all of those things. How much are we doing for our mental health? Your generation, the younger generation are champions in that. Um, you know, for uh, many communities, as you're talking about, that stigma still continues. Uh, but it takes people like you and I to get out there and say, hey, let's talk about this. You, There should be no shame in your game. I talk about some of my own issues. I've had hypochondriasis, an unreasonable fear of getting illness. Had that for many years. Had to go to therapy for that. I've had generalized anxiety. I had to go to therapy for that, you know. And I've had obsessive compulsive disorder. And I've had to deal with that, constantly checking things and so on, make sure the lights are turned off and so on. I like to tell a little joke. I kept checking the gas stove all the time to make sure it turned off, right? I would leave, come back, let me check it, leave, come back. And then I realized there was an electric stove and that finally got me to stop. But anyway, that being said, yes, absolutely, there is still a stigma. As far as services that are available, there were a lot of services, but since... COVID-19, we find that the wait time and wait lists for people to see clinicians is at this point, it's through the roof. I can tell you, I have started since COVID-19, start seeing patients at seven, eight o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night, 
five days a week and eight hours a day on Saturdays and Sundays. And it's not that I want to work like that, but it's there are so many people in need. It's unprecedented how many people have anxiety, depression, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and want to get help, but it is so difficult to find clinicians. They are out there and you can look and there are places, but for many people, they're having a hard time with it. How has this pandemic impacted our mental health as a community? I mean, you know, we've heard a lot um, and I've talked to other experts about uh, the depression rates, the high suicide rates, the depression rates amongst young people. I mean, goodness, uh, God bless you for calling me young, but for the really young people <laughs> who are going through all of those formative moments that were so precious to us, the graduations, the proms, the you know, first job interviews, the first jobs when you learn how to work with people and you know, all of those things were taken from them. Uh, where are we right now, Dr. Jeff, as a community in terms of our mental health? Well, we, we, we have been impacted by all of the things that you have said. So I don't need to repeat those things. And what we've also seen, though, is academically, kids have been affected. They have lost scores by 50% on mathematics and reading. And just as you said, and it is worth saying this again, what has been snatched from them is that we know school is not just about reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's a place to learn social interactions. It's a place to come out if you're part of the LGBTQ plus community. It's, well, in most states, it's a play. I know you don't want to go there. It's it's you if know you like. it's, what. Well, we know what's happening in you know in certain states where don't say gay and so on. You know, my concern, of course, is that we are not teaching our children to respect all children and those children who are part of the LGBTQ plus community in those particular states. How they're going to be affected? by a society, by a culture that does not want to recognize them. So, you know, that's a story for another day. But what we have to really understand, and, and of course you know this, but for our audience, COVID-19, unprecedented. You know, I think we're in denial as to how COVID-19 changed every single thing that we do in life. It changed our culture. We are in a culture shock. And I think a lot of people just don't even realize. We now, in a positive way, of course, a million dead here in the United States, and those numbers are probably larger. So that in itself is a tragedy and a travesty, and we could have done much more to avert those sorts of situations and that and that and those deaths. But the issue as I see it is. In a very interesting way, we have started adapting and we now have increased technology and other parts of our society in ways that in two and a half years, three years, we have now adjusted in a way to some extent that would have taken 15 years to reach or to have that kind of progress. So just imagine sitting in a car, you're doing 100 miles an hour and someone slams on the brakes. 
and you go flying forward. That's what I believe the pandemic has done to us psychologically, technologically, as a culture. We have now recreated or innovated or suffered what we've done in three years, two and a half years, that normally should have taken 15 years. Don't you think that some of the adaptations that you talk about have really created their own challenges? So during this lockdown period where we've just become accustomed to communicating via Zoom, you know, once upon a time when I first started this fun uh, podcast project, I used to meet people in real life. Like I had a studio, a person would be there. Uh, we've all kind of acclimated to a certain level of distance. But I, I'm going to make an even broader point because, you know, you talked about some of the politics in Florida. Um, I had a Florida representative on recently. I don't, you know, we were always maybe going to be here because of the technology. But now, given the technology, given the fact that our primary way of consuming information and engaging with one another has been like this, you know, sitting in these computers. We're in each other's business in ways that um, I think is unfortunate. You know, you've got people like focusing on what's being taught in classrooms and it may or may not, you know, people are mad about books that may not even be being taught. They're mad at teachers who are underpaid and frankly, I think deserved hazard pay, even in the best of days, at least some of them, I agree. Some of them did. I agree. Some of them didn't. Some of them shouldn't be there. You know, we've created this world where everybody has everyone under a microscope. And it's resulted in a lot of people, everyone feels more defensive. I, I don't know a lot of people who think that, you know, wow, I'm able to like, really be my best self in this new environment where my computer may be on anytime. And if I don't mute the mic, it might be used against me. I mean, aren't we, you know, in this weird kind of distorted place where we all think that everything we think in any particular moment is too important? Uh, I, I really do see um, that we have so many innovations now and yes, we are in everyone's business and everything is being, you know, for the most part, not everything, but many things are being recorded. And therefore, people are very, very careful as to what they say. Uh, and of course, you know, sometimes we make mistakes in the things that we say. I'd like people to be more forgiving uh, in that way because you can't be perfect uh, all the time. Uh, but I believe that's part of that culture shock too. Uh, the fact that we know, you know, uh, virtually everything that is going on in the world. In some ways, that data collection is very important and can help with uh, technology and advancing us and looking at our cultures and mores in a more positive way. But at the same time, we know some of that data is sold without our permission. Algorithms are being built without our particular permission. Uh, and, you know, it does really make us feel like uh, we've lost our freedoms uh, in those particular ways. In a positive way, I think it certainly has made us think about the things that we say and the things that we take for granted. It makes us look at perhaps the implicit biases that all of us have, by the way, 
All of us have implicit biases, but it makes us take a look at those things. It makes us take a look at possible microaggressions, and it makes us want to be even better, I feel, in how we interact with other people. What does forgiveness look like? And I'm glad you bring it up, Dr. Jeff, because I am of the view, not as a clinician, but just as a human, that forgiveness is an important part of one's own healing. Like you got to move on. It doesn't mean you got to forget, but right. you, know, you got to move past it. What does forgiveness look like in a culture and in a moment where it is so cheap and easy to offend people and where, you know, I can rattle off an, an apology for something horrible as easily as I can make my cappuccino mm. order. So when you talk about forgiveness and I assume that you bring it up because it's an, it's an important component of mental health. How do you do that? these days where not right. only is it easy to offend, but the offense has become normalized. It's in some quarters become celebrated. You know, people run for office and get lots of people voting for them when they say horrible, nasty things about people. What's the value of forgiveness in an environment like this? It, it does uh, really uh, take it to a different level and the equation becomes different. Before we had, um, you know, the, the uh, divisive politics that we have right now, I think people really did listen to one another. If someone apologized, they didn't just apologize and leave it at that. They tried to see the other person's point of view. And therefore, uh, the apology was something that was heartfelt. And the person who was offended, uh, it was important for that person to also be able to hear what the conversation is and what that person was really, really trying to say. So Tanya, I agree with you a million percent. People can be easily offended. Uh, I believe that there are people who don't care about offending other people and they use it as capital to build their campaigns to divide people, to weaponize uh, hate. Uh, and you're not going to hear those individuals apologizing. And if they do, and we've heard some of those apologies, we know that they're worthless. They don't mean anything. It's just a way to worm out of a particular situation. If you really want to apologize, then let's talk. Let's see what it is that was said that offended you. And let's see what perhaps the person who offended what, they're, what they were really trying to say and how we can come together to figure out a clear message to one another and where we can agree to disagree or just agree. That can happen, but it has to be thoughtful. It can't be a knee-jerk response. It really is about talking to one another. Remember those days? Back in the day, Dr. Jeff, Back in the day, I will have a conversation with most people, not everybody. You know, I mean, I, I think that we all draw our lines. Isn't that an important part of our mental health? I will sit down and have at the other end of this microphone, somebody you can, we might vote for different people. 
you might see different issues differently than I do. I, I guess for me, the uh, benchmark is, do you agree that regardless of how I look, my gender, the body in which I'm born, that I'm entitled to the same rights as you are? And do you think that you get to be the decider of me? If your answer is no, we're going to figure it out together, then there's a place. But there's a lot of people um, mm -hmm. don't see the world in that way. Dr. Jeff, before we go, let's give people five good mental health habits that they should start practicing. You know, in the physical realm, it's easy. It's like stand up every, you know, two minutes. Every two minutes, stand up for 10 seconds or whatever the prescription is. Take the stairs, not the elevator. Try to go to sleep at the same time every night, mm -hmm. which... I totally don't do. So <laughs> I'm just saying these are aspirational. Um, right. What are five good habits, mental health habits, that you would like to see people adopt? Well, first and foremost, uh, I think it's really important that people practice mindfulness. Uh, too often we get really stuck in everything else that's going on in the world, thinking about tomorrow, about next week, what happened yesterday, and we're not spending enough time with ourselves. What is it that we're hearing? What is it that we see? What is it that we smell? What is it that, you know, how do our clothes feel on our body? What are we doing? Who is around us? How important our family is? That's number one. Number two, it's important to connect with families. Those, those people, family and friends are our anchors. They are our support system. They help us uh, in order to get through some of those stressors. Number three, talking about stressors. It's important to identify what our stressors are write them down. What are the things that make us feel so worried and anxious? Uh, what are the things that are difficult for us to deal with? And get ourselves out of those situations and try not to keep banging our heads against the wall and doing the same things that bring us those stressors. Number four, it's also important to have some sort of spirituality for your mental health. And by the way, spirituality is not just about religion. Spirituality is the belief in the goodness of womankind and mankind. You have to have hope. Where there is hope, there is love, and where there is love, there is hope. And finally, I would say it's important if you need help with strengthening your mental health. Uh, if you have a mental health challenge, go out and get therapy. Join a support group. Um, talk to a friend. The catharsis of just speaking with someone is so important. And it's not always about solving problems, but it's being able to speak your heart, speak your mind, and connecting with someone else. That is such beautiful advice. Uh, I hope everybody is listening and takes heed. Uh, we are honored to have someone here with your depth of experience, Dr. Jeff. And uh, the pleasure. advice that you've given really will help people on just a very basic level, because as you said at the outset, I'm going to end where we started. Uh, some people, everybody can have a bad day and you should take care of yourself when that's happening. Um, and for some people, that bad day 
become something much darker and more serious. And to the extent we can, we should be there to uh, support those people and provide help. And at the end of this uh, podcast up on video, I'm certainly going to have a list of resources for folks who need help or know someone who may. So thank you, Dr. Jeff Gardere, for being here. And I really do hope you'll come back. This was really valuable. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. Thank you, Tanya.